All right, let me invite you, if you would, to take your Bibles and turn with me uh, to the Gospel of Mark and chapter 14. Mark chapter 14 and beginning, we'll read in verse 3. And while he was at Bethany, in the house of Simon the leper, as he was reclining at table, a woman came with an alabaster flask of ointment, of pure nard, very costly. And she broke the flask and poured it over his head. And there were some who said to themselves indignantly, Why was the ointment wasted like that? For this ointment could have been sold for more than 300 denarii and given to the poor. And they scolded her. But Jesus said, Leave her alone. Why do you trouble her? She has done a beautiful thing to me, for you always have the poor with you, and whenever you want, you can do good for them. But she will not always have me. She has done what she could. She has anointed my body beforehand for burial. And truly I say to you, wherever the gospel is proclaimed in the whole world, what she has done will be told in memory of her. My Father, we come before you this morning. God, we approach in faith with boldness the throne through our Lord Jesus Christ. And before you and before this congregation, I confess my own poverty. Lord, there is nothing in me, there is no wisdom, there is no goodness, uh, as as we heard earlier, um, that could expound your truth, that could give glory to Christ. It is all of him. So I pray, Father, as we come to your word this morning, that the Holy Spirit would undertake for us, that he would open the scriptures to us, open our minds to receive and to know and acknowledge the truth about who Jesus is and what he is worth. I ask all of this in his name. Amen. So, as I have, have gone through life and grown older, old-ish, I've, okay, so, and some of you are like, <sighs> I have found it interesting or kind of funny how um, these truisms that we hear, especially um, as kids, um, show themselves really to be true uh, by experience. And one of the things, one of those truisms that I'm finding really to be true right now is that I often don't know how to appreciate what I have until I no longer have it. Can you relate to this? We take things for granted. Take hair, for instance. Um, I was talking with a, with a, a a guy at work this couple of weeks ago and, and said, honestly, dude, if I knew how much I would miss my curly locks, I would seriously, I would have dyed my hair blonde, grown it out to my shoulders, and gone around like Fabio, because it's, I, you, I, you don't always know how to value something until you don't have it. And this is really true, isn't it? This year, we're learning just how many things we've taken for granted, things like handshakes, and hugs, and the ability to sneeze openly in public. (laughs) These things aren't so serious, but it becomes serious when we take people for granted. And even more serious when we take the Lord Jesus Christ for granted. When we fail to value him for who he is, 
and to honor him for his glory. Are we like this? Do we see this tendency in ourselves? And if so, then why? And how can we rightly value Christ? The passage we're looking into together this morning speaks to these questions, and it can provide us with an example of how we may value Jesus Christ rightly. So we're looking at this story of Jesus' anointing at Bethany. Matthew, Mark, and John all give us an account of this single, very memorable event from the final week of Jesus' earthly ministry. And all three of these gospel accounts were taken down from the memory of men who were there to see this happen. Matthew and John having personally been present, and Mark's gospel being based on the Apostle Peter's recollections. So taken together, these three gospel accounts provide us with many very vivid and deliberate details which preserve for us, by the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, the picture of what has happened here at Bethany. And every one of these details has something profound to say about who Jesus is and how he is to be worshipped. I will say one of the things that I find really, really exciting about this text and the fact that we're studying it together now is how prophetically kind of interactive it is for us as a church. And what I mean by that is, The fact that you and I are hearing and studying this story about Jesus and his anointing at Bethany is in itself a kind of continuation of these events. See, Jesus made a prophecy here. He says that Mary's act of worship, about her act of worship, wherever the gospel is proclaimed in the whole world, what she has done will be told in memory of her. This prophecy is being fulfilled right now. We are linked with this story. And Jesus intends that we should know it and be familiar with it because what Mary does here to honor Christ was beautiful and it was fitting. And I hope that together this morning we can experience some of the beauty of this moment. I hope that we can gain a sense of this worship and honor and obedience so profound that Jesus said it should never be forgotten. So in Mark chapter 14, let's go back and read in verse 3. And while he was at Bethany, in the house of Simon the leper. So here are some of the first significant details that I want us to take notice of. All three of these gospels share the fact about where and when this event of Jesus' anointing takes place. Bethany was a small town, really just a suburb, just a couple of miles outside the city of Jerusalem. That Jesus and his disciples would pass through on their way into Jerusalem. And we know that he often had stopped here and stayed in the home of his friends Lazarus, Mary, and Martha. So Jesus is here staying in Bethany. He's in Bethany because he's on the road to Jerusalem at Passover. This is a critical moment. See, following Jesus' miracle of raising Lazarus from the dead, the hatred of the religious elite for him has reached a fever pitch. He poses too great a threat to their power, and now they fully intend to kill him. Jesus is aware of this, and he's coming to Jerusalem to throw a match on this tinderbox. The manner of his arrival and the triumphal entry 
is deliberately calculated by Christ to set into motion the events that will end with his crucifixion. In this, we see the commitment of Christ Jesus to the Father's plan of redemption being accomplished. So this is the broader context um, in which these events take place. He's in Bethany because he's on the road to Jerusalem. He's on the road to Jerusalem because he's on his way to the cross. So when Jesus and his disciples arrive in Bethany on this day, it was a Saturday before his triumphal entry into Jerusalem on a Sunday, a dinner is held there that night in his honor. John's gospel tells us that the dinner was put on by Lazarus and his family, that Martha served the meal, but that it was hosted in the home of a man called Simon. Um, We're told that he is called Simon the leper. So here's another of those small but very significant details, one that should not be lost on us. See, at this time and in this culture, the home of a leper would not really have been the first choice as a venue for a dinner party. A leper in this culture, and really at any culture, was an outcast and completely cut off from his people. No one came into the home of a leper. And yet here is Simon, the leper, hosting this dinner for Jesus and his disciples. And this can only be a result of Jesus' healing power in his life. We see here a life restored by the power of Jesus Christ. Also in attendance, we learn on the guest list was Lazarus. And I honestly think that a whole sermon could be preached on these two people and their presence at the party and what it says about Jesus and about his power to cleanse and to restore and to give life. So we have a man present who may as well have been dead. We also have a man who had actually been dead, both of them alive and rejoicing in the presence of Jesus Christ. So let's continue reading in verse 3. It says, As he was reclining at table. So again, a detail, a significant detail that we are given. And the fact that every gospel that records this event shares when it happened means that there is significance behind when this happened. The authors want us to understand what this moment was like when Mary stepped out to anoint the Lord Jesus Christ. They want us to know what was going on. It was as he was reclining at table, which means in the middle of the meal, as food was being passed, as cups were being filled, as laughter and loud talk was filling the air, and doubtless spirits were high, or most spirits high, as word is getting around this group about the people who are pouring into this region, into Bethany and Bethsaida, to line the streets the following morning and acclaim Jesus as the Messiah. So this is what this moment was like. It was a moment of busyness. But all of this busyness stopped when this woman, John's Gospel tells us, is Mary, steps out, an alabaster flask in her hands. And as she approaches the place at the table where Jesus sits, the room falls silent, and all eyes are on her. Let's continue reading. 
while they were reclining at table, a woman came with an alabaster flask of ointment, of pure nard, very costly. And she broke the flask and poured it over his head. So here, again, many details that are intended to build up for us and to create for us this this tension and this drama that this moment is charged with. So we know that this woman approaches Jesus with this flask in her hands. It would have been a highly recognizable flask, a perfume bottle, to these onlookers. They knew what it was, and the second she opened it, they knew what it contained. Pure spikenard. This oil, spikenard, was one of the most precious commodities in the known world at this time. Extracted from the roots of the plant known to us today as, I'm going to see if I can pronounce this, Nardostachys jatamansi. I probably shouldn't have tried that. Also called the spikenard or the muskroot plant. This particular plant only grows in the Himalayan mountains above elevations of 10,000 feet. So it would be harvested on these mountains And merchant caravans would bring this plant and the roots of this plant, the spikenard plant, more than 5,000 miles over the Silk Road through deserts into the near Middle East and the Roman Empire and into Egypt where it would be processed, its oil extracted, and bottled in these beautiful and very distinct white jars. Now all of that to say, you couldn't just go out to the corner market and pick this stuff up. Now today, of course, you can get on Amazon order it, and have it in two days, which is what I actually did last week. My curiosity absolutely got the better of me as I'm reading this story. I had to know, I had to know what this stuff smells like. Anyway, moving on. You guys would like to know, wouldn't you? Okay. I promise I'm going to tell you we will get there, so, but we're just going to have to be patient. By the way, to buy as much spikenard, pure nard, as Mary used here to anoint Jesus, which John tells us is one litron, or about 12 ounces, would cost today over $1,000. So I got a really, really small bottle of this stuff. But in the economy of Jesus' day, this amount of spikenard would have cost nearly 50 times that amount. So it was a little bit pricey. In the words of the gospel writers, we are told it is very costly, or polytelus, which means very precious, very costly, extravagant. All three of the gospel stories are very careful to point out that this oil was also pure. See, there were many counterfeits for nard, for spike nard in this culture, and it was common to to have it watered down. But what we're meant to understand is that this bottle which Mary brings to Jesus contained nothing but the real thing, pure and all the more precious for its purity. The fact that something this valuable was actually Mary's to do with as she pleased likely means that it may have represented for her an inheritance or a dowry, an heirloom passed down to her and surely the most precious thing that she owned. But see what she does with it. And she broke the flask and poured it over his head. 
So what exactly is happening here? Why would she do something like this? What does this mean? The truth be told, our modern American culture has little use for symbolism. We typically want nothing to do with tradition or ceremony or emblems. And the sad result of this fact is that the poetry and the beauty of things like this are often lost on us. But to a Jew, especially in Jesus' day, the tradition and the ceremony and the symbolism were everything. And all of their traditions drew their meaning from Israel's worship of Yahweh throughout history. And the tradition of anointing is one of these richly significant traditions in the Jewish culture from their history. And it is a symbol which points beyond itself to deeper spiritual truths. So let's look for a moment at the meaning of anointing as it is presented in the Old Testament. We first see it in Genesis where Jacob, after God reveals himself in a dream, anoints a stone with oil to signify the holiness of this place. He then calls the stone Bethel, or house of God. From there, we see anointing mentioned many, many times in the book of Exodus and Leviticus, where God commands that his tabernacle should be anointed, along with everything associated with his worship, including Aaron and his sons, who would serve as priests. Which is, by the way, spikenard was one of the ingredients that God had specified should be used in the making of this holy anointing oil for his tabernacle, for his worship. In Exodus chapter 30 and verse 30, it says, God is speaking, You shall anoint Aaron and his sons and consecrate them that they may serve me as priests. Always we see these two concepts together, the physical symbol of the anointing with this spiritual reality of consecration. To be consecrated is to be set apart unto God for his divine purpose. And consecration, this setting apart, is at the heart of the meaning of anointing. So the symbol of anointing is a very visible, physical expression of something which is happening at the divine level where God is setting apart something or someone unto himself to fulfill his divinely appointed role or task. So as we continue through the Old Testament and we see anointing come up again, we see it in uh, relation to the kings of Israel and God's commandment that they should be anointed, that they should be consecrated unto him to rule his people. We read of David's anointing to be king, that then Samuel took the horn of oil and anointed him in the midst of his brothers. And the Spirit of the Lord rushed upon David from that day forward. So here we see how anointing also represents God's sovereign choosing of the one that he anoints. Often when God commands that a man should be anointed, he specifies that this should happen in the presence of his peers. Here are David's brothers. And this is to emphasize this point that God has chosen this individual over their fellows. And finally, with David's anointing, we also see how the symbol represents God's empowerment of the one that he chooses for the task to which he appoints them by his spirit. This is a visible representation of a spiritual reality. And for God's anointed one, 
the flow of this oil as it's poured over the head pictures the pouring out of the Spirit of God upon them to empower them for the task to which God has appointed them. So let's take this knowledge about the symbol of anointing from the Old Testament back to what is happening here at this dinner party in Bethany, and let's allow that to interpret for us what Mary is doing and what she is saying about Christ by taking this oil and pouring it over his head. She's making a statement. This is Mary's confession about who Jesus is. He is God's anointed one. The one whom the Father has chosen, holy unto himself, exalted above his companions, consecrated, appointed, and empowered by the Spirit for his divine purpose. He is the Mashiach, the anointed one. And by this action, Mary is declaring for everyone present at this dinner that she sees Christ for who he truly is. She is exalting in this truth. And she is declaring it boldly with everything that she has. This is worship. This is worship. So how is Mary's action received? What is the, what is the response to this? We read in verse 4, there were some who said to themselves indignantly, why was the ointment wasted like that. For this ointment could have been sold for more than 300 denarii and given to the poor. And in Matthew chapter 26 and verse 8 we read, and when the disciples saw it, they were indignant saying, why this waste? So immediately among the disciples, there was this this emotionally charged response to what Mary has done. And they began whispering together, agreeing together about how they all felt about what's just happened. And their feeling was this unanimous indignation. They were indignant. The word here translated indignation means to feel pained about something. It is an irritation, an offended anger. It is actually the same word used to describe how the chief priests And the scribes felt on the following day when the children in the temple were crying out about Jesus, Hosanna to the son of David. They were indignant. It irritated them. To them, it was not fitting. This isn't a good look for the disciples here. They saw what Mary had done and they said, why this waste? They may as well have said, he's not worth it. How can this be? How can this be? How could the disciples have failed so miserably to rightly value Jesus Christ? I think there's a clue that we can find to their blindness in the surrounding passages, and it is their favorite topic of conversation, especially when they think Jesus is not listening. They were debating it on the road. They would argue about it in the days to come, and doubtless it was what was occupying their thoughts at the dinner table this night. Who will be the first in the kingdom? Who gets the corner office? See, at the time of Jesus' entry into Jerusalem, every one of these men are desperately angling for position. So busy honoring themselves, they fail to honor Christ. And so when Mary steps out alone to do what they ought to have done 
And she extravagantly honors Jesus as the Mashiach. Her, their pride is hurt, is wounded. It irritates them. They feel like they've been upstaged. But they mask their jealousy in this self-righteous objection by saying, this ointment could have been sold for 300 denarii and given to the poor. In John's gospel, we actually learn that Judas is the one who stepped up and acted as spokesperson at this point to voice the group's complaint. He says, why was this not sold for 300 denarii and given to the poor? The hypocrisy and the arrogance of this statement is staggering. It was directed both at Mary and Jesus, and it was meant to shame them both. Now, John reveals that the real reason Judas was, Judas was so upset is that he really didn't care about the poor, but as treasurer, he knew that this expensive oil, had it been donated, he could have lined his own pockets with the proceeds. See, Judas was in this only for what he could get out of it. And it's easy for us to sit here in judgment of Judas and of the disciples and of their blindness to this moment, to the value of Christ. But how often are we the same way? How often do we fail to rightly value Jesus? How often have we felt the pang of irritation when others are seen or elevated for their devotion to Christ? Let me ask you this. Does it ever make you uncomfortable when your fellow believers, sold out to Christ, give their all to him in worship? When hands are raised? When singing is loud? When time and money and talents are sacrificed? Is there in, some, in, in our hearts, in some place, Something that says, now that's just going too far. These kinds of thoughts expose in us to what extent when we claim to serve Christ, when we claim to, claim to worship him, we really serve and worship ourselves. Oh, that we, like Mary, might be so completely forgetful of self in the light of the glory of Jesus and who he is. So we've seen, we've looked enough at the disciples' response. I'm getting upset. They wanted, they wanted Jesus to put Mary in her place. She'd just gone too far. But how does Jesus respond? First we see that Jesus receives, he accepts Mary's act of worship. He accepts the offering. As she approached the table, he knew exactly what it was she meant to do. And he didn't say, now hold on, Mary. This is not for you. You are not the person to do this. Nor did he say, Mary, I appreciate the thought, but, but really I think there are some better ways that this could be used. No. He knows what's in the flask. He knows what it's worth. And he receives it. When she stopped behind him at the table and broke the neck off of the bottle so that every last drop might be spent on him, Jesus simply bows his head and allows the entire contents of this flask to roll over his brow, drip off of his beard, and soak into his clothing, his clothing that would soon be bartered for at the foot of the cross because it smelled like this. Why? Why did he do this? Because it was fitting. It was fitting. The disciples may have said, couldn't this have been put to better use? But Jesus knew that there was no better use for this oil. It's worth he was infinitely worthy of. Mary gets this. 
she recognizes Jesus' true worth, and she's giving testimony to it. And she gives testimony to his worth specifically by breaking the flask. There are plenty of commentators who are willing to say, okay, so what happened here? She really didn't break the flask. What, what the, it, it can't mean that. So it must mean something else. It must mean that she broke off the lead or the wax seal of the flask. They say it's too improbable. She would have needed a, a hammer to break uh, an alabaster marble bottle. Um, she wouldn't have the strength to do it, so it can't mean that. It's very interesting In this region of Israel, archaeologists keep uncovering, from this time period, these perfume bottles, all of them very similar in shape and design. They're called in the Greek, alabastrons, which is the word in the the passage here. And many of them are made of glass. Suntripsasa ten alabastron. She having shattered the flask. It's a very dangerous hermeneutic that says it can't mean this, so it must mean something else. We need to let the scriptures speak for themselves and let the truth shine out. Having shattered the flask, why would she have done this? See, had she unsealed the bottle, poured out any amount of it, and then stopped it back up, it would have been as much as to say, that's enough. That was enough. But to break apart the container and pour it all out to the last drop on Christ was Mary saying, it's not enough. It's not enough. He is worth it all. Everything that I have to offer and more, he is worth it. Reminds me of the line from a hymn, where the whole realm of nature mine that were present far too small. Love so amazing, so divine, demands my soul, my life, my all. This is worship. And it is worship that Jesus receives. Second, we see that Jesus defends Mary's act of worship. But Jesus said, leave her alone. Why do you trouble her? She has done a beautiful thing to me. For you always have the poor with you. And whenever you want, you can do good for them. But you will not always have me. She has done what she could. She has anointed my body beforehand for burial. And in John chapter 12, verse 7, we read, Jesus said, leave her alone so that she may keep it for the day of my burial. The Greek phrase that is translated here in the book of John, so that she may keep it for the day of my burial, um, has actually two alternate readings, and various translations approach it differently based on certain exegetical assumptions. In the ESV, the assumption is that Mary still had some ointment left in the bottle, therefore it's translated, so that she may keep it for the day of my burial. But an alternate reading that assumes there was none of the oil left, says, leave her alone. She had intended to keep it for the day of my burial. Basically, Jesus rebuked to Judas. What he says is, Judas, you were never going to get your hands on that money. That was never going to be yours. It was always, it was for me. She had made this 
for me. See, Mary had made up her mind a long time ago about what she was going to do with this treasure of hers. She had chosen to use it to honor Jesus at his death. She didn't even use it when her brother died. Which then leaves us with this question. Why does she use it now? Why now? Jesus actually speaks to this in the latter part of the verse as he explains the true significance behind what Mary has done. He says, she has anointed my body for burial. You remember that I promised I was going to tell you what spikenard smells like. I had been waiting for weeks to get my hands on this stuff. So it finally came in the mail this last week. Couldn't wait to open it. I had to know. And I'm really not sure of what I expected. But I can tell you, it was not aqua for men. It is really, honestly, very difficult, actually, to describe the smell of this oil. And so I have some of it with me in case anybody's just like me and has to know after the service. But the overall effect of it is, is very extremely earthy, kind of musky, sharp, and very, very, very powerful. I put only a few drops of this stuff on a piece of cloth uh, almost a week ago. I left it in, in my attic room where I study, and, uh, and today that entire room smells overwhelmingly like this nard. Now, the spike nard's potency is exactly what made it so desirable in its primary role as an embalming oil for funeral rites. See, the Jews did no actual embalming, and instead, when someone would die as a last act of love and honor for them, their family members, their loved ones, would wrap the body in strips of cloth that were soaked in these strong-smelling oils to cover up the smell of the decay. They would then lay this body in a tomb carved out of rock and pack the body around with even more ointment and spices. Jesus says, that it is this kind of anointing that Mary has done. The anointing of a corpse for burial. The Bible scholars disagree as to whether or not Mary really knew what she was doing. Had she somehow been able to anticipate Jesus' death, and had she deliberately chosen to pre-embalm him, or instead, had the Holy Spirit moved in her to do something that was of greater significance than even she could know? I believe that the biblical evidence points to the fact that Mary could not have foreseen the imminence of Jesus' death, and therefore the true meaning which Jesus attributes to her actions was by God's divine intention and not Mary's. Because although Jesus had repeatedly foretold his death to his disciples, in Luke in chapter 9, verse 45, we read, But they, the disciples, did not understand this saying, and it was concealed from them, so that they might not perceive it. None of Jesus' followers expected him to die, including Mary. They did not understand, because they were not given to understand. Only after Jesus' death and resurrection do we read that he opened their minds to understand the scriptures, that the Christ should suffer and on the third day rise from the dead. So Mary could not have known the full significance of her actions. 
which makes this even more beautiful. See, this was not her idea. She didn't come up with this. She was moved by the Holy Spirit to anoint Jesus in this way. To anoint him for burial. Because the Father had divinely appointed it to be so. She had dedicated this oil for that purpose. And the Spirit says, do it now. Do it now. So we've seen how anointing throughout the scriptures has always been this physical, visible expression of a spiritual reality, something that happens at the divine level. And that is very much true here. Mary is pouring out the oil, but it is God the Father who is anointing his son for burial. Jesus knew this. He knew it. And he willingly bows his head to receive this anointing to death. He submits himself to the Father and embraces the plan of redemption. Think about this. For the entire week of Jesus' passion before he went to the cross, he carried with him in his hair, in his clothing, this smell that meant that his death was decided. It was settled. Behold the love of the Father here. In his unshakable resolve to put to death his holy son to make atonement for our sins. Isaiah 54 and verse 10 says, Though the mountains be shaken and the hills be removed, yet my unfailing love for you will not be shaken, nor my covenant of peace be removed, says the Lord who has compassion on you. See, just as Mary shattered the flask to pour out in love its costly oil on Jesus, in love the Father crushed his only begotten Son so that every drop of his pure and costly blood might be poured out on you and I to take away our sin. Yet it was the will of the Lord to crush him. For he made him who knew no sin to be sin for us, that we might become the righteousness of God in him. Behold also the glory of the Son in his submission in his commitment to the will of the Father. When his soul makes an offering for guilt, he shall see his offspring. He shall prolong his days. The will of the Lord shall prosper in his hand. Out of the anguish of his soul, he shall see and be satisfied. By his knowledge shall the righteous one, my servant, make many to be accounted righteous, and he shall bear their iniquities. He's worthy. He's worthy. This is the message of his anointing at Bethany. He's worthy. This is what Mary was saying. He is worthy. Jesus said, wherever the gospel is told around the world and throughout history, this story must also be told. There is now an indelible link between the proclamation of the gospel and Mary's beautiful act of worship. Because the heart that she demonstrates here in seeing and savoring and honoring Jesus Christ with the best that she has, with everything that she has, stands for us as an example of what a fitting response to Jesus looks like. 
The implication for us is this. Look. Church, look at this and learn what it is about. The scriptures are holding up Mary's heart of worship for us as an example so that we might compare our own hearts against it. Do we see ourselves in her, in this response? Or are we more like the disciples here, so full of concern for their own glory and their own position, they fail to see the glory of Jesus? If you find this to be the condition of your heart this morning, if Christ does not to you seem to be worth everything, First, let me encourage you to examine yourself and see if you be in the faith and have truly come to know him. And if the answer is yes, that you do know Jesus Christ as Savior and yet still you find a lack of love for him, then brother or sister, you must take time as Mary did and spend it at his feet. Learn his commandments. Learn who he is. See what he has done. Come and see what our God has done for us. And in seeing him, your love will grow until it finds its expression in exultant acts of worship. Let's pray. Father, we together confess how often we fail I know I do, to value rightly your son, to honor him with all that we have. I pray that your Holy Spirit might undertake for us, might give to us the freedom to worship like Mary. I pray that this would not soon depart from our hearts, but that we would pursue the face of Jesus Christ, pursue the knowledge of you in Jesus so that we may know him and love him and honor him and worship him. I ask it in his name. Amen.